All right, so Tyler and audience, just so you know, I have my child here on my lap, which is... (laughs) (laughs) All right. Audience, if you hear a baby in the background, that is my baby. I do not have a babysitter today, but I think that might be okay because today on our hot takes number two, we're going to be talking about prenatal screening. You know, having a baby in the background might just be sort of fitting for the episode. We started talking about this idea for a hot take because of an article that we read in the Atlantic Monthly. Um, It actually just came out in the December issue. And it's about Down syndrome prenatal testing, um, specifically in Denmark, but um, obviously there it's happening all over the world. Devin, did you get a chance to look at that article? I did. It was all over my social media. It's a topic that gets talked about in disability studies and disability communities all the time, but it's rarely given this kind of platform in such a important news outlet. So, and the reporting actually on it was very well done. So I think this was. This was popular amongst many of my friends on social media. So the idea is, just very briefly, and and Devin, you're obviously more well-versed in this area than I am, but the idea is that during the pregnancy, during when a woman becomes pregnant, that she is able to go into her doctor and to get a series of uh, testing done uh, very early in the pregnancy. The, uh, The issue comes up when you start thinking about what types of conditions or what types of genetic uh, markers are being tested for, not only just what should we be testing for, but then the question also then becomes, what do we do with that information? And it kind of reminds me of a, uh, a, a quote that I read in a book a long time ago that said, genetic testing is like picking your nose in public. You need to know what you're going to do with the results before you start. <laughs> and I, I think that that's uh, true here. And specific condition that was talked about in this article in the Atlantic was about Down syndrome. Yeah, I mean, it's a controversy insofar as there are people who think that it's a good idea to proliferate genetic testing so that women can make choices about um, whether or not they want to keep their pregnancy um, or whether or not they want to have selective abortion. So there might be conditions under which um, that a fetus will have a certain characteristic or a phenotype or a genotype that a parent wouldn't want to raise that child with um, that might cause suffering, that might um, diminish their well-being. And so you want to get them tested for various things to decide whether or not you want to continue on with the pregnancy. And this is pretty common. Um, I don't know if you remember, Tyler, your children are a little bit older than mine, but um, since I just went through this and I am one of those um, women who is of advanced maternal age. So I'm, I'm super old. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's ridiculous. Advanced. So I had to have a lot of ultrasounds and I had a specialist because I'm a little bit older. And so when you are uh, over 35 and you're pregnant, then you get lots of extra testing. And so, or you're offered lots of extra testing. Um, And so I was offered a lot of screenings that I actually did deeply consider and decided not to do because I had thought, well, what am I going to do with those results? For me, there was no question about continuing on with my pregnancy. So I decided not to get those. And thankfully for me, my doctors were not super pushy about it because I've talked to a lot of women who have said they're, they were really judged for not getting certain screenings and tests while they were pregnant. 
Um, I did not have that experience. My doctors did ask me a few times. I think that they're required to ask me more than once. But once I sort of definitively said no, they were fine with that. And we talked about how most things you would later detect in an ultrasound if we wanted to prepare for something else. So that was a choice that I made. I, I don't think that's a choice that I think everybody should make, but just uh, that was my experience with it. What types of things do you remember them testing for? Um, so there was an initial uh, fetal cell screen that, you know, I I don't know that they told me even exactly what it was for, but definitely for Down syndrome um, because there is supposedly an increased rate as you get older. I think other trisomies, so other chromosomal conditions, trisomy 13, um, trisomy 18, those were sort of the big ones that they would have tested for in a really early screen. Okay. What was interesting about the data or the information provided in this article was that the number of parents who choose to terminate the pregnancy of Down syndrome fetuses is actually surprisingly high. So the article says that in Denmark, where the the focus of the article is that more than 95% of parents who are given the information that their child has Down syndrome choose to terminate that pregnancy. I, I guess I just wanted to check, just kind of ask what you know, what's the conversation in the disability rights or disability advocacy community about those types of statistics and kind of the, the discussions about what's going on here? Yeah, so I, I'd say most people um, in that world probably knew that this was true. So stats in America are always sort of um, difficult to come by because we don't have like a national healthcare system that keeps track of these things um, in the same way that other countries with socialized medicine do or a national healthcare system do. Yeah, so that, that statistic is not something new to me, but it is one that is disturbing for a lot of people, especially parents of children with Down syndrome who chose to continue on with their pregnancies. We know that, so Down syndrome was one of the very first chromosomal conditions that was able to be detected through a prenatal screen. So this was back in, I think, I believe it was 1959. So it's been around a really long time. And it's not because people thought, oh, Down syndrome is absolutely just the most terrible thing. It was that it was just so easy to see in a screen. So, but really since the 60s, parents of children with Down syndrome have been saying that it's the proliferation of these tests is perhaps um, damaging to their children who will later become adults because if we start doing all these screenings and abortions increase, then it's going to be hard to get services for the people with Down syndrome who do live in our communities. Um, The less of them that there are, um, the harder it will be for for people to get um, the kind of services that would enable them to live good lives in our communities. Like you said, Down syndrome isn't necessarily the the most serious condition that we can test for, right? In my family, we have I have a couple of cousins with cystic fibrosis, which is another genetic disease that can be tested for. But if you think about other genetic diseases or genetic abnormalities that uh, anybody could be born with, I'm thinking of like you know hemophilia, for example, which is a very serious life threatening disease. I don't know that there's as much conversation about whether we should or shouldn't try to reduce the number of children born with hemophilia. Right. I mean, it, so this is where it gets it gets sort of difficult to talk about because even if you're a disability advocate, there are conditions which are incompatible with life that you know you might think differently about. Something like Down syndrome. It is true that in general, people with Down syndrome tend to have a shorter lifespan, but it's not. I mean, it's still 
into adulthood. So it's not as though they're dying shortly after birth. Um, and if that were the case, I think we might think differently about it. So how serious does um, that diagnosis need to be in order for this to be sort of a no-brainer or for this to be more or less ethically problematic? With Down syndrome, it doesn't seem like, you know, this is certainly not a condition that's incompatible with life, and it's not a condition that's incompatible with well-being. So many people with Down syndrome would rate their quality of life quite high. And so to say that Down syndrome causes suffering or lowers one's quality of life, you know, those are controversial statements um, that just don't seem to pan out in reality. But Down syndrome, I mean, it's always been sort of the test case of prenatal screening, both because it was the first, but also it seems to be the one that a lot of people go to. So James Watson, who was one of the guys who, quote unquote, discovered the double helix. I'm going to put it in quotes because he didn't. Um, That was a woman, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which maybe that's a whole different podcast. But um, uh, so uh, Franklin actually was the first to discover it and, and Crick and Watson stole her idea. But Anyway, we'll, we'll push that. We'll, we'll make that another episode. We'll, we'll put a pin in that for later. Put a pin in that. But, uh, he, you know, he was one of the first to come out and say, any parents who'd want a child with Down syndrome would be crazy. And, you know, so, so kind of the idea of the Human Genome Project from the start was to get rid of conditions like Down syndrome, quote unquote, conditions, which meant eliminating people. So eliminating children from being born with Down syndrome. Um, and the guy who invented IVF. He also, so we can also do pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which is when you create an embryo outside of the womb, you can test it for certain genetic uh, markers, and then you can only implant those embryos that don't have the things you're trying to weed out, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so that guy also said, you know, it'll one day be the sin of parents to ever have a child with a condition like Down syndrome. So it has always been sort of touted as the thing that geneticists want to get rid of. Mm-hmm. So it has that kind of long history to it too. It seems like it was, it was a couple of, I mean, many years ago, maybe like a decade ago, the controversy in the public, you know, in the public media about designer babies mm-hmm. and the idea that you could select a child that not only would not have the specific disease that you were trying to avoid, like cystic fibrosis, for example, or hemophilia, but also you could select for uh, physical traits like eye color, for example, or you know any any other type of physical characteristic that I think most people would agree have very little bearing other than maybe a superficial bearing on the quality of somebody's life. Does it kind of get into that type of debate as well, that conversation? It does. I mean, it's interesting. So when you poll people, at least Americans, and you ask them, you know, should we be able to select against certain traits and characteristics, the majority of Americans will say, yes, we should be able to do that. Um, But when you ask them if we should select for certain traits, so eye color, sex, things like that, the majority of Americans will say, no, that's a step too far. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you sort of, I think when you dig into the reasons, right? So we can say having blue eyes versus brown eyes is superficial. That doesn't have anything to do with anyone's well-being or quality of life. Yeah, that I think that most people would agree that that's true. At the same time, then could you not say that about other characteristics that we have decided are um, somehow bad or um, lead to a low quality of life, even though people with those characteristics, with those traits, say that that's not true? It gets a little bit complicated there. So where do you draw the line? Selecting for yeah. and selecting against is an easy line, but that doesn't necessarily help us solve the selecting against. What comes to mind is how tall somebody is and how much that may or may not correlate with somebody's quality of life. I have uncles, a cousin who's actually 
you know, six foot six or seven or eight, you know, he's a giant amongst us. <laughs> but then I have um, other members of my family who are really quite short and even some who have, you know, had medical treatments in order to try to increase their, their stature. So I think that that's, some, that, that's another line that, you know, how much is purely aesthetic or superficial versus how much is actually important in influencing how somebody lives and how well they live. Right. And what's interesting about that example is that it is true that um, people who are taller and there's a cap, right? So if you're really, really tall, um, that sort of diminishes quality of life. Actually, um, I think it ends up at some point diminishing the length of your life because the world is not made for very tall people. Um, Mm. So that can be actually quite difficult on your body, too. Um, But it is true in, in our culture that tall men tend to be more successful than very short men. And so there is some quality of life that gets built into that. And But you know, of course, so should we then give medical treatments so that somebody could feel better in their body by being a little bit taller? Um, this, the example I always like to give my students is idiopathic short stature syndrome. So we decided that if you are two standard deviations below the average height, and this is almost always for men, but sometimes for women too, um, then you are uh, you have short stature syndrome. So there's not actually anything physiologically wrong. There's no pathophysiology there. But mm-hmm. if we give you growth hormone as a child, it, it'll increase your height. And so even if you don't have a growth hormone deficiency, we've developed a syndrome, being very short as a syndrome. And then we can mm-hmm. give you growth hormone and you will presumably grow a few inches taller than you otherwise would have. So we've sort of medicalized mm-hmm. short stature yeah. when perhaps we didn't need to. So this idea about being able to select eye color and hair color, perhaps, it sounds like eugenics, right? At least some some form of eugenics. Is that not right? I think so. So, or at least some people would say this. So, I mean, I think it goes back to, you know, you think turn of the century America, Americans actually came up with the idea of, or at least proliferated eugenics in a way um, that hadn't been seen before. So the idea was just that you were trying to build a better stock, create, you know, better genes in people. And so the American eugenics movement of the early 20th century was really trying to do two things. It was both in a positive and negative sense. So part of the idea was encouraging people of good stock, people of good breed to have more children. So educated people, white people, um, people of a certain class, those were good stock and they needed to have more children. And other kinds of people needed to have less children. And so there was that kind of just supporting good families through fitter family contests, uh, race betterment sort of stuff. Um, that was all kind of the positive eugenics. But then, of course, we all know there's there was the negative eugenics too, where we were trying to sterilize people who were potentially going to pass on characteristics or traits that were undesirable. So we forcibly sterilized something like 60,000 people in America, you know, against their will to make sure that they couldn't reproduce. You know, and if the idea was that you're trying to get certain kinds of genetic conditions, chromosomal conditions out of the population, then yeah, a lot of this actually does sound eugenic. And so some people will say this is a kind of new eugenics. We're not forcing, right? So some people will say, well, we're not forcing people anymore. We're not doing what the Nazis did, but you know, we're allowing people to make choices and that's, you know, that's what we want. And of course, choices are good, but it, it does feel in some ways, like it's carrying on a legacy of eugenics when we're selecting for or against 
certain traits and then using pre-implantation genetic diagnosis or selective abortion to make sure that certain kinds of children aren't born. I will say that bioethics has not been friendly to disability on the whole. It's unfortunately, um, there are many bioethicists who are not fans of sort of disability rights and disability advocacy for many different reasons. And some will try to argue that it'd be better if, you know, children were never born with disabilities or characteristics like Down syndrome. And that, that is a position that is still taken by prominent bioethicists today. So, so in some ways, even suggesting that this might not be the best idea is a little bit radical. Uh, and the, the arguments are sort of, you know, that these children are hard to raise by parents, it's unfair to families, or that it's unfair to society, that children with disabilities are a burden on society, which is just an yeah. incredible sort of argument to make, in my opinion. Yeah, so th those kinds of arguments, you know, that's just what we do as a society. We take care of the vulnerable. We don't eliminate vulnerable people so that we don't have to take care of them. One of the last lines of that article where the um, Sarah Zhang is noting that, you know, some people will tell her, oh, you know, people with Down syndrome have been underestimated. You know, they can read and they can get jobs and they can go to college. She makes a point at the end where she says, you know, I mm -hmm. I." wonder why people need to point out the achievements of people with Down syndrome to make their lives meaningful. Can't they be meaningful? Aren't their lives worthwhile, valuable, even if they don't achieve things that we find important? You know, things like getting a job or, or going to college. Yeah. Might, might their lives not be meaningful, even if those things aren't true? You know, I think any morally sensitive individuals would would say that you know there is value in the life itself. I think one of the, the the takeaways for me from this was that there's a lot of concern about how we use these technologies and also some of the unforeseen or unforeseeable impact or results from using these using technology in this way. That's right. I think so I think you're right Taylor there's a lot of unforeseen consequences of trying to weed out traits and characteristics and genes that we think are undesirable. I also want to say, I just don't want to live in a world where there aren't people with Down syndrome, where there aren't people with disabilities. I couldn't agree more. I think that that is the essence of what it means to be human, is to have such diversity of individuals and, and perspectives and ideas. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. Special thanks to Chris Wright for writing and performing our theme music. For show notes, visit bioethicsforthepeople.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All right, so if anyone hears a baby screaming in the background, that is my baby. Sometimes... Oh my god, he ate so much of the moss out of our fake tree just now. <laughs>